This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Post-Brexit Spycraft. Working on an IP you dislike. Emperor Rudolph II. And yet more, Tell Me More. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Rolier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Rolier's release, and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Rolier at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Cannon Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something. It's why they're... Protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost in Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. The clatter of dice, the lovely parquet flooring, and the uh, sounds of uh, Courtney Barnett playing uh, in the pre-show tell us that we're once more entering an up-to-date modern gaming hut. And in this gaming hut, it's, uh, well, maybe not quite modern enough. I promised last week that we would do another all-Patreon backer uh, question at answering uh, podcast. And uh, we've got lots of great questions in the hopper and ready to go. And, of course, there are all sorts of other uh, new topical things that come up that I also want to uh, get in the uh, list. So we've got lots of cool ideas. And this one, I guess we're answering it a little bit later than the question asker uh, thought, because the question goes as follows. And this is from Tom Abella. If the Brexit does indeed occur, what gaming opportunities could there be for a modern spy campaign in which the UK suddenly has less official access to European intelligence and less leeway to operate hand-in-hand with foreign services on their soil. Might we need a new edition or expansion pack for the Dracula dossier in a few years to handle the change? Well, Ken, I'm sure Simon would love to wallow in in post-Brexit rumination. Uh, Where do you want to start tackling that question? Well, I mean, first of all, obviously the Brexit has not technically yet occurred. Parliament could, you know, say, yeah, we're not going to do that. Or it's somewhat more occurred than when he asked the it's question. It's more occurred than when he asked the question, but it hasn't occurred yet. So Tom Abella is still asking a question about the future, not about the past. You are not slow. Brexit is slower. That's what's happening. Um, the first thing, I mean, uh, to address the Knights Black agents' questions first, since your agents are burned spies anyway, the official relationship between MI6 and the Continental Intelligence Agencies is probably less uh, vitally important to you, except maybe you get an extra minus one on your heat for leaving Britain and going into the into Europe or vice versa. You might want to treat it as as a outside the EU 
uh, relationship for purposes of heat crossing. The Dracula dossier, again, assumes that... Um, explain what heat crossing is, sorry. Oh, the heat is the uh, degree of attention you've, you've drawn from official authorities by setting off a bunch of bombs or killing a bunch of random people on the spurious claim that they're vampires. And uh, when you cross a boundary out of a jurisdiction your heat goes down because they can't chase you across the boundaries. They don't have the jurisdiction to do it. Now, back when Britain and the EU were all one big happy family, uh, you leave Britain, you go to Europe. It's basically the same thing because uh, information gets passed along and uh, pursuers can pursue with minimal paperwork. If Britain does, in fact, leave Brexit and if they become uh, even an associated power like Norway, much less a not particularly associated power, uh, like Switzerland, then it, it, it does indeed become a actual major bureaucratic barrier to go from one country to the other, even in hot pursuit of a bunch of dangerous stake wielding fugitives. Right. So, uh, I guess another question is to what extent a Brexit will actually change security arrangements. Uh, and you can flip that two ways. You can put the positive spin on it and say that, well, all the intelligence agencies will still have just as much incentive to cooperate as they do today, or the more realistic, cynical perspective, which is they don't really cooperate all that well now. Yes, the, the uh, it's European intelligence is basically a fiction already, so uh, pretending that Britain and this nominal European intelligence are separate is no stranger than pretending that there's a European intelligence apparatus in the first place. Uh, France and Germany and Britain cooperate when their national interests call on them to do it and not a jot farther, um, uh, as indeed we can tell from the degree of chasing ISIS around that they're doing, uh, where, you know, the guy runs into Belgium, for goodness sake, and France is stymied much less into Germany or into Britain. Right. And we, we talked earlier about what a problem Belgium is in terms of its uh, uh, security situation. Um, and I guess the other question I would have then is, uh, I mean, I, I, in a realistic world, I think what's going to happen with Brexit is that it's going to be turn out to be EU membership in all but name, because anything else would cost more. And there's so much brinksmanship and nonsense about it that uh, it'll be a more expensive version of being in the EU, EU and be more annoying. But in the a more fantastical uh, spy world, uh, what sort of uh, plot lines do you think would uh, come out of that? Is that a, a thing that's going to drive storylines, or is that just going to be sort of a detail in the background that's not going to matter much? I think that it could drive storylines. I mean, you will see people who want to write um, up-to-the-minute MI6-style thrillers addressing it, and if they are someone like Le Carre, who has very strong political opinions, you'll see it coloring the spy thriller in the sort of uh, way that spy thrillers often are used to point up real or imaginary flaws uh, with the country that the spy thriller is ostensibly set amongst the heroes of. So, and that goes as far back as Lecou that we've talked about in the 1890s saying, look how helpless we are before a German invasion. And it goes down now to Le Carre saying, look how helpless we are before American slapping us around and making us go to war that we didn't want to go to. So it's the same sort of uh, histrionic quality of spy thrillers. And obviously, if you have a, a, a pro-Brexit author, they will say, uh, it's the duplicitous Europeans are trying to mess with Britain and, uh, and they're jealous and they're dragging us down. And the, and the, uh, anti-Brexit guys will be saying, well, thanks to Brexit, you've ruined everything and the bad terrorists can do bad things. And MI6 is shackled, I tell you, because we can't, uh, go to Berlin without showing a passport at the airport. Yeah. I would say that the next Bond movie will end up having a 
uh, thinly, a villain will be thinly veiled Nigel Farage, uh, the way that a, a thinly veiled Robert Maxwell has already been a Bond villain, <laughs> except that a thinly veiled Nigel Farage is already the villain of the new Star Trek movie, so they, <laughs> they beat him to it. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, the, 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 the first time that Bond does something original this century will be the first time that Bond does something original this century, but... Well, uh, oh, oh, heaven for fan, let's, let's not... Get anyone thinking that I want, as a classicist, I don't want Bond to be original. Right. That's a, a tangent. Um, so I guess the real question, though, we've, I've asked three or four different real questions, but my real real question, now, Ken and I, we know that vampires are fictional and that Night's Black Agents is in no way a documentary of real events. But given that disclaimer, why did the vampires cause Brexit? This is a maneuver in the hidden war inside the vampire conspiracy. Uh, if it is Dracula's conspiracy, this is whoever Dracula left in charge in London to run things saying, you know what? I don't want to be run by stupid Dracula. I'm going to begin separating uh, Britain from the continent so that I can have my own little vampire empire. And that might be Lucy Westenra. It might be Orlock or, or some other junior vampire that was left, uh, left there. Like might be Lord Godalming, who's been a vampire this whole time. Any number of possibilities. And it's a, it's a power play. It's an attempt to break up the, um, uh, the, 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 the beautifully, uh, well-honed machinery of Dracula's vampire conspiracy that spreads from Bucharest to uh, London in the way that Nigel Farage does not approve of. Right. And so the fact that uh, people are upset about the Romanian presence in England is... Uh, it's a code uh, word. Yeah. Yep. It's all... It's... it's it's uh, And let's just say that it's Lord Godalming. It's Lord Godalming using um, uh, his contacts in the media to cover for his own Renfield death squads that are going around and staking Dracula's Renfield death squads that he has prepositioned in London. This is, this is like a coup. It's, it's like Kremlinology where you have to read into, uh, the sort of seemingly unrelated things that appear in the newspapers and realize that it's actually uh cover for the propaganda campaign that is cover for the secret, uh, political campaign that is eliminating, uh, one's rivals. So what is the uh, revelation uh, that gets us as the player characters uh, burned as spies and sets us on this campaign about the Brexit war between Godalming and Dracula? Well, I think in the, in this world, uh, it's Godalming that leaks the Dracula dossier. Godalming drops that into the player's lap as a way of weaponizing them and sending them after Dracula so that Dracula can't use his full attention to crush Godalming. He's got, oh, he's, he says, look at, look at these, uh, super competent burned spies that against all realism have somehow remained unshot by MI6 snipers. I'm going to drop them into, uh, the meme stream, feed them Dracula and send them to Bucharest to kill him while I'm, uh, busy eliminating the rest of his empire here in, in England. Right. And, and he's probably not too happy with whatever faction in MI6 is trying to re-recruit Dracula as well, right? Right, yeah. The, the, the question of, is Edom pro or anti-Brexit is an interesting question. And even Edom might not know that Godalming may have suborned some of the people there to say, look, if we want our own vampire, I can give you your own vampire. I'm Lord Godalming. I'll just, you know, turn someone uh, from the SAS and make him a vampire, and you can go send him to do anything you want. And then 
some of Edom would say, great, that's all we ever wanted was a British lord to tell us what to do. And the rest of Edom is like, no, 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 no. We want our own vampire, not Lord Godalming's own vampire. That violates the whole principle of the thing. So Edom itself is torn in the pro and anti-Brexit uh, camp in the same way, uh, perhaps, that elements of other British institutions might be torn. <laughs> so, a lot of British institutions have been oddly sliced in half. Yes. Um, I'm not going to say that Edom is the is the Labour Party or the Conservative Party, although I assume that uh, more of them are Conservatives than are Labour. But they too may have a fanatical leader who is out of touch. They're presumably not Corbyn supporters, uh, whichever side they're on. Yeah. So uh, Godalming drops the uh, Dracula dossier on us. Uh, he's trying to get us to go to uh, uh, Bucharest to uh, wipe out uh, uh, Dracula. What are the what's the trail of clues that uh, we've got one choice to do that? What's the set of clues on the other side that's going to possibly lead us to start investigating Godalming instead. I think that there's two possibilities. One is that because Godalming is killing so many vampires in Britain that people may be drawn just because Edom is, is setting off the most heat locally. The other possibility is Dracula wouldn't do it because Dracula doesn't want to say, hey guys, there's vampires everywhere. But it's possible that if Dracula's got a local head in Britain who desperately needs Britain to stay in Brexit so that they don't get uh, tossed into a black prison or staked. They then do a deep throat to the players and say, there's more than the dossier is telling you. The dossier is a construct just like the novel was, that kind of thing. And they show up in a parking garage or in um, uh, Kingstead Cemetery or wherever and try and turn the, the the agents to question the the real identity of Hopkins and whether or not Hopkins is just a construct uh, created by Godalming to get the uh, player characters on the on the hop right and then you could have the the alternate uh, document drop from you know your, your WikiLeaks document drop uh, emanating from the east from uh, from uh, Romania if not from Russia which then has uh, you know all of Godalming's emails and uh, they seem, uh, weird enough to the uh, surface political world, but you, as uh, you were beginning to suspect, suspect what's going on, you see all of the code words, you see references to uh, the killings that you thought were Dracula's but turn out to be Godalming's, and so that creates the question in your mind. Do you go after the near vampire, who uh, uh, nearby vampire, not nearly vampire, he's 100% vampire, but he's nearer to you. Mm -hmm. Do you go to the one at home, or do you go to the one far away, and uh, do you uh, object to uh, being used as a uh, pawn, and if Godalming is using you as a pawn and you resent that, uh, the GM can then set up the possibility of uh, giving the group all sorts of incentives to ally with Dracula against Godalming, and that, I think, opens up a whole interesting uh, bunch of uh, moral quandaries and choices within the group, and I think there would be members of most groups who would like to get to hang out with Dracula for a while, although I think everybody knows that eventually that worm is going to turn on them. Exactly. But uh, there is nothing better, I, I find, in a horror game than to have a villain ask the players for help. That always unnerves the heck out of everybody. And having Dracula say, uh, you are under my hospitality, take what you need and kill our fellow foe yes. would be pretty you, boss. You wish a safe house, my... I have the safest house of all. The safest house of all is for you. Um, and, uh, and, and even, you know, uh, whatever Dracula's got in, in England, if they want to use it to, uh, take out his rival, he's happy to let, let them make use of it because 
he can always kill them and make more minions, especially if he has to show up in London to sort of tamp everything down, which he probably doesn't want to do. And uh, if you've got a uh, schism within Edom, where uh, some people are with Gondalming and some people are uh, with Dracula and, you know, there's a... Or let, let's in- say with the original plan. Yeah. <laughs> Although Dracula, of course, also may have, have his own moles in Edom, but now we're sort of complicating the storyline a bit. Well, uh, I guess when we're complicating the storyline, it's time to declare this segment at an end and move on to our next exciting segment. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters. Are both available at the Pelgrain website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The ping of a PayPal account updating and the ping of a nickel hitting a hobo cup tell us we've once more entered the business of gaming. And in the business of gaming, Wesley Marshall, Patreon backer, asks, When a game designer is offered work on an IP that he or she dislikes, does the designer have an obligation to not take said work? Is there an ethical standard by which the designer should have foregone such work? If the designer is not an independent designer, should he or she have informed their employer? question mark um and i'm assuming that the last one the last question is if the designer is not independent should they have informed their employer that they didn't ever want to do the uh, work on this ip once the word was being brooded around so that it never didn't ever become a question i guess right i I think the difference is uh is it different if you're a freelancer right to take work on a, a property you you don't like Versus if you're uh, an employee, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a a pretty small number of people right now who are writing on a salary basis. 
Uh, there used to be more of them, but uh, Watsi changed its uh, staffing model. Its system. And so this is, as one intuits, uh, this is based on a, a real-life event, and the r details of the real-life event have been uh, left out from Wesley's question, and uh, I, I don't know them, and I don't... Certainly, uh, an important thing about professionalism, I tend to think more about professionalism than ethics, first of all, because ethics are usually something that you want other people to have. <laughs> and uh, uh, I would prefer to talk about uh, what I would do and wouldn't do uh, with the realization that people uh, draw the lines differently. And certainly, I, uh, if I did work on a property that I didn't much care for, I would be careful not to ever let anyone know that. Mm. <laughs> that seems like an important precaution. So I guess ultimately the one question I would start to ask is, well, it depends on the property, right? What are the depths of your dislike for something? So if uh, Simon uh, and Kat picked up the license to the world of gore. And, and, <laughs> I, said, and I, can, I can see that being a, a seamless fit with our current yes, uh, brand. Exactly. That would be a, <laughs> I've deliberately chosen a thing that would, would happen uh, before the, the sun freezes. Um, and, uh, <laughs> or possibly during. <laughs> right. And so you and I would be in different positions if uh, we were uh, approached that way, because I'm a freelancer and you're a staff writer. So... Uh, I could very easily uh, weasel out of it by just citing my other commitments and saying I wasn't uh, so interested. And certainly, uh, just from the point of view of uh, if you are in our position, me even more than you, uh, we have the freedom to say no to things that we don't want to do, that uh, I have enough uh, offers and enough opportunities, and my uh, problem is more, you know, having the discipline to say no to things rather than you know, waiting for offers and, and hoping to make my uh, rent the next uh, week. So, you know, the more you advance your career, first of all, the, the less this problem is going to occur to you. But also it, de it depends on how much I dislike something. There's an easy way to not have to do it if you're a freelancer, which is you just say, uh, well, I'm not actually familiar with that property. Right. As I, for example, know Gore by reputation, but oddly enough, I'm not familiar with the details of it. And so I could just say, oh, well, you know, I'm just not really a gore guy. Um, what? Uh, how would you respond if you were asked as a, a salaried writer to work on something that you didn't really care for? Well, again, I mean, I think that the, the notion of, you know, you cases being handed down from on high with no consideration for your own interests, that wasn't even true when I was a salaried writer at Wizards, and it certainly wouldn't be true at Pelgrain. Um, even assuming that Kat and Simon decided that they needed the Gore property, uh, they probably wouldn't ask me because in a similar box, there's tons of other things that they know that I do want to write. And they would simply put me on one of those and then give the Gore property to let's, let's drag Ruth into this. Give it to Ruth Tillman. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Speaking of incredibly likely things. Yes, yeah, while while we're on the surface of the freezing sun, let's have a party. Um, so I, I think that even with, and because when, uh, for example, when Watsi, uh, had the wheel of time, which is far, uh, less ethically, uh, problematic than gore, but was still something that I was never going to touch with a million poles. Right. Um, they said, Oh, let's make Steve Long do it. And you can, can work on Call of Cthulhu D20, which is a much better division of labor. Um, when it's an IP that you dislike, I think the question is not even a question necessarily that the IP is good or evil because the number of 
truly evil IPs out there that people want to hire other people to write as opposed to, I, I think if someone wants a right, gore role playing game. Let's just something that you yeah. think is lame rather yes, than something exactly. you think is morally something reprehensible. Something Wheel of Time. Um, if something is lame, I think you have an obligation not to work on it because your work will be less than your best. Uh, I have worked on properties before that I thought were uninspiring and I quit them as soon as I possibly could because I knew that I was not putting my best work into it and was therefore being paid for something that would a uh, weaken my brand if it were ever published because people would say, well, that's kind of a, a he sort of slept through that one. Um, and B, uh, it w- takes longer. It's more expensive for me to produce something that I don't care about or, or don't like because I have to sort of will myself up to do it. And you never get into that state of flow where you're, the words are just pouring out or you're just full of inspiration and think of a, a million great ways to do this. And again, like yourself, uh, I'm far enough along in my career that I can pretty much pick and choose even within the Pograin stable and say, I want to do this. I don't want to do this. And everyone's happy with that. Uh, so I think that the ethical standard is not don't write morally evil games. If you have a grave moral problem with, you know, I don't even know what it would be. Well, let's say with vampire. I mean, I'm sure plenty of people don't want to play vampires. I don't particularly want to play vampires. I don't have a moral problem with it, but, but if you're saying, no, I'm not going to do vampires because they're problematic, uh, things in the, the, the Tumblr will, will hate them. Then you just don't do that and you go on and you do something else. Uh, but your ethical standard is more to make sure that everything you are doing in the field represents your best work. And if you can't do your best work because the source material bores you or you just don't grok it or for any other reason, don't do that. Um, good Lord knows none of us are being paid enough to uh, grind out uh, work we don't believe in, I think. Right. There's just not that much in it and it's harder and it's unpleasant. And uh, obviously, and I think implicit in Wesley's question is, I assume there is something that he wanted to be great, but uh, he doesn't think is great because whoever worked on it, their heart wasn't in it or they're trying to actively uh, undermine it. I think we've uh, answered this question as much as we can. So I'd like to sort of move on to another thing, though, as that as a freelancer in general uh, or as a staff writer, your job is to find what is exciting about the brief that you are given. So the other way to... Uh, deal with this is to think of yourself as being very versatile and perhaps you have never been a huge fan of transformers uh, but you're asked to be the new transformers line developer and uh, let's say that's your opportunity that you have this year to do something or you're you know you're a staffer and your boss tells you i don't care what you think about transformers or the money is super good because you're being hired by nintendo or someone who doesn't know what we're being paid right and so in that case your job is to become a person who loves transformers right is to tackle the material again ask yourself what is it about this property that i'm not seeing that makes it popular for so many other people and what is it that fans of Transformers... Oh, you may you may be missing the fact that they're robots, but often they're in disguise. Right. There you That's go. what makes it great. Um, but, you know, wh- wh- why do people love it? What do people love about it? What are the elements in it? And so that way, uh, you can choose to tackle it as a technical exercise. And you can say to yourself, well, I personally don't uh, love Transformers. I just wasn't in the right age bracket for it. I've never gotten what the deal is, but I'm going to find out what the deal is. And I'm going to give people, because I have distance from it, I'm going to give people a better Transformers experience that is more true to Transformersness than a fan would, because a fan is going to care about a particular 
a class of robot, and that's their favorite kind of robot, and they're going to write all about that right. robot. There, there, well, there's going to be a whole Starscream chapter, and 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 because they love Starscream so much, right. Uh, whereas I'm going to be the one who's going to stand back, be analytical, find out what people love about it, and give them that. And that's a pretty good exercise for people who think of themselves as professional writers, because you know there are times when you're given a challenge that you're uh, that is not necessarily your forte, but uh, you know, you, you're helping out the publisher in a pinch, or you're just starting out, you're demonstrating your versatility. So definitely, I would say, you know, on a uh, making your bones level and learning how to do this and do it well, you're going to learn more from something that you don't start out with Infinity for and learn how to develop one and learn how to analyze what it is about that, that's cool about it than by just sort of dashing something off and then later, haha, you know, I'd never really left that because that's uh, people use the word hack for a bunch of different things, but my uh, personal definition of it is that uh, you are working on something that you wouldn't like if you finished it, right? That you're, um, But you can still do something that you're not the audience for if you engage yourself with the process of pleasing that audience. Now, it's not necessarily going to be the same natural fit for you as something that you do really love, but maybe that thing you do really love, you only love the particular portion of it and you're you don't have the perspective on it yeah i mean again i think that even if it is something you really love or perhaps especially if it's something you really love you owe it to yourself to develop that perspective on it anyway and to understand that while obviously the real star trek is the original series there are literally dozens <laughs> of people who love the rest of star trek and it's up to you as a star trek game designer uh to find the bits of Deep Space Nine or, or, uh, um, uh, Next Generation or even God forbid Voyager Enterprise that make those people excited and interesting and fold them into your presentation of all of Star Trek so that your, your, your love for Star Trekness can come through. Even if you're talking about a specific iteration of that setting that you're like, well, not my cup of tea, but it's part of Star Trek. And I know enough about Star Trek now, and I see where the appeal is that I can write towards that appeal, even if it is not viscerally something that I share. Uh, and I think that that's certainly possible. And Right. And, and the thing is to not go, oh, well, I can make this more interesting by making it more like original series. Uh, no, no, that's not the brief. You right. haven't been assigned the uh, task of making it enterprise how it would be if they'd hired you to create the series but you're serving that thing that already exists. And again, you know, as, assuming that it's something that you, you just aren't, aren't attuned to your, your job, uh, as a, uh, freelance writer who, uh, works on other people's things is to, uh, find a way to fit into that, find where you connect to it and, and do that bit. And even outside of established properties, uh, you know, you can be assigned, okay, well, we, we need somebody to do the magic items chapter of this, property that we own the rights to and that you help develop. Well, maybe you're not uh, usually excited by magic item chapters, but, you know, find a way to become excited by it. And, and that, and through that to excite your readers, because uh, as you suggest, otherwise you're just kind of hurting your brand. If you write something uh, uninspired or that undermines the property that you're uh, uh, writing about, that's going to show through on the page. Oh yeah, and writing something like, that undermines the property that you're writing about, I think, is an actual violation of the contract. 
uh, unless you are hired by people who hate the property and told destroy this property. Um, unless you're Verhoeven working on Starship Troopers, your job as I certainly as, as a, someone trying to pre- present a game for fans of an IP is not to undermine the IP and to make a lot of, you know, behind your hands snickering tongue in cheek references. Well, we all know this is stupid. Here's how you play stupid game. Uh, your job is to instead bring out uh, the elements of that property that are what we need is atheist Narnia. Exactly, that's what. And 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 Aslan actually eats Edward, and he's replaced by a skinwalker. That's you know Edmund rather. That's not um uh, that's not exactly the the brief of of the game designer, or it certainly shouldn't be. And we get more than enough of that nonsense with people who think they're clever in other entertainment media. We can certainly leave that on the on the roadside as game designers, I feel. Right. So I, I think the overall answer is uh, I prefer uh, fuzzier terminology than, uh, you know, unethical and obligation, but it really does fundamentally come down to uh, your uh, respect for your own creative work and your willingness to take on uh, the challenge of finding something. And your respect uh, for your audience. Yes. Yeah. And your respect for your audience. So finding something that will deliver what the audience wants even though you would not be the audience for your own product if you weren't hired to work on it. And I think that we are we are beginning to recapitulate our opinions in the air of um, a satisfied uh, gentleman in a club somewhere, which means we need to open up the windows, let the cigar smoke out, and scamper into a less plushly furnished hut. What historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This show also made possible by generous patrons precisely like... Daniel Markvig. Derek McMullen. Eben Lindsay, Ethan Cordray, and Garrett Fitzgerald affirm that our podcast is neither holy nor Roman nor an empire by supporting us at patreon.com slash Ken and Robin. We now wend our way up a familiar set of cobweb stairs 
where we look at the portrait of Madame Blavatsky, who glowers down upon us, but we just wave in a friendly way to her as we go on by into the parlor of the consulting occultist. And this time, the consulting occultist has been consulted by Patreon backer Carl Schmidt. And uh, he would like to know about someone who we've mentioned in passing in uh, another segment, the John D. segment, but here he gets spun off into his very own consulting occultist segment, and that is the Holy Roman Emperor, Rudolf II. He was Holy Roman Emperor from 1576 to 1612, and uh, I think for our audience, uh, the Holy Roman Empire is uh, uh, perhaps a, a confusing, obscure historical fact to begin with, so why don't you quickly uh, clue people into what he was king of? Um, well, as Holy Roman Emperor, he was, in theory, emperor of all of Germany and uh, most of Italy. Uh, the theory rapidly diminished into not actually uh, outside the boundaries of Austria, Hungary, and Bohemia, which were the uh, sort of the crown lands of the Habsburgs at the time that he was the chief Habsburg. And so he uh, wound up moving his throne to Prague, which he thought was a nicer place than Vienna, um, and uh, which is no doubt true, uh, certainly in the 1600s, and uh, set himself up as the emperor in Prague. So he ruled Bohemia more directly than Holy Roman emperors had before, which <laughs> played not a small role necessarily in starting the Thirty Years' War in Bohemia, because that's what happens when the emperor is right there. Um, although he was personally relatively tolerant uh, towards uh, Protestants and, and even Jews, um, the whole machinery of the imperial court exists because the emperor is a Catholic emperor uh, crowned by the Pope and made uh, holy by his papal backing, not necessarily by any great personal qualities that he may or may not have had. Right. And uh, in addition to uh, his role in making the uh, Thirty Years' War uh, more likely, uh, he's also known as an art patron. Uh, he was known for uh, commissioning a lot of erotic art because uh, back in the Renaissance, you didn't have the internet to stream uh, naughty imagery to. You had to pay artists to paint things for you. But he also uh, was responsible for commissioning uh, a lot of other, uh, what's called the Mannerist School of Art, uh, which, as you might guess from the term, is sort of uh, mannered. There's lots of sort of distorted anatomy, and uh, it's kind of, uh, weird and cool and, and gothic, although by no means the most popular school of old master art. And it's very bold if your head is already the shape of a potato to ask artists who distort anatomy to paint you. Yes. Uh, and uh, his most famous unrealistic portrait, he got uh, Arsimboldo to uh, paint him as a uh, god of the spring. Arsimboldo is the uh, painter, or the most famous painter who painted portraits uh, that were like collections of plants or vegetables or, or what have you. So um, I'm sure everybody has seen his work on postcards, and there's a, a portrait of Rudolf II uh, done in that style. But the thing that is of relevance here, not in the culture hut, not in the history hut, but the uh, consulting occultist parlor, is his interest in alchemy and astrology, which, of course, it's still the early Renaissance, uh, and so these are just still thought of as a uh, part of science, but this was the part of science that he was particularly interested in. Um, he was interested in a lot of science. Uh, let us remind everyone that he was a patron of our old buddy Tycho Brahe and of Johannes Kepler, 
uh, both of whom also had a, more than a little something to do with astrology, though, because, again, the boundaries between astrology and astronomy and between chemistry and alchemy were being uh, tentatively explored at this point. And indeed, Oswald Kroll, a famous alchemist and chemist, was in uh, Holy, the, the court at Prague under Rudolf. Uh, Kroll is one of the first people to say maybe there's a difference between natural chemistry and alchemy, um, uh, and not by saying an alchemy doesn't work. He said alchemy just works on divine principles that uh, have to be established um, uh, from the outside, whereas natural chemistry works even if you're not particularly holy and ascetic and are a terrible person, you can still cure things with tincture of lead or whatever. Right. But he's beginning to announce a split between science and magic. Right. And it is the sort of, um, uh, the, the, the sort of cheap tactic of popular historians to say that that split is again, uh, reified within the mind of Rudolf II, because Rudolf II, whatever else was going on with him, was probably manic depressive and was at least accused by, uh, vile uh, circulars of being literally bananas uh, because he spent a lot of time with his court dwarves and he eventually stopped uh, going to Catholic services. He refused uh, even final um, uh, the, the, the extreme unction uh, at his deathbeds. He did not want uh, sacramental rites on his deathbed, which at the time they thought he must be crazy. Um, at, he possibly had decided that he was a, a Protestant or he possibly he just decided that he had, um, uh, done something so bad that he couldn't possibly be uh, forgiven for because, like I say, terrifyingly um, uh, uh, manic depressive at times. And then right. he also has relatives who are, because he's a Habsburg, his relatives show every possible type of genetic drift. And so uh, some of them were um, uh, schizophrenic or otherwise mentally ill. And the degree to which some of that may or may not have shown up in his own weird little Habsburg genome uh, is an open question, but he was not a stable fellow under the best of circumstances. And he had a complicated sex life. He was uh, uh, likely bisexual and never married and had uh, some illegitimate children, uh, one of whom uh, went on to commit a horrible murder. So uh, it was very Habsburgy. Very, very Habsburgy. And um, uh, also, although this is not immediately relevant, um, under his watch, Elizabeth Bathory um, uh, was able to be a vampire. Um, she probably... Uh, never met Rudolph, or if she did, it would have been briefly at court if uh, she and her husband came to be presented at some point. But just saying he did let the vampire problem get out of control. Right. Uh, the other things that he'd got to do, though, as our consulting occultist, is he did indeed, as you suggest, bring a bunch of occultists to the court at Prague and uh, pay them a stipend. So uh, John D., for example, was at uh, Rudolph's court, although was never Rudolph's court magician in the same way that he was Elizabeth's court magician, even in that same way. Right. But he, uh, but Edward Kelly managed to pick up a nice little sum of money. Dee's partner and, um, uh, perhaps, uh, the, the con artist half of the, of the team, uh, managed to pick up a nice little stipend and stay. And that's why he stayed in Prague after Dee left. Right. And it was during that time, wasn't it? That Dee had his books stolen, which allowed us to look at them hundreds of years later. Uh, it is while he is in Europe, um, that his books, uh, were indeed liberated by, rich jerks who lived nearby. So, uh, Rudolf II himself, uh, was he uh, known for particular occult advances, or did he write about the occult, and did he uh, leave an imprint uh, on occult thought? The imprint that he left was by paying a bunch of occultists to do occult things. Um, he did 
alchemical experiments in his laboratory. He had what he called the Kunstkammer, the Chamber of Wonders, um, where he would uh, try to engage in all the arts and sciences to make himself the, the fully realized Renaissance man. So it's not like he's secretly doing alchemical experiments. He's probably trying his hand at casting a horoscope and at raising, you know, lima beans from a paper towel and whatever else he was up to. He was doing a bunch of things to demonstrate his Renaissance command of, of all arts and sciences. Um, and he would go out of his way to collect wonders, uh, both human and animal wonders, and also mineral and other kinds of weird wonders. So he had, uh, you know, if, if someone had a magic rock, they would, you know, take it to the court and sell it on. And uh, the guy that ran his Kunstkammer, who was usually... Uh, and the Kunstkammer is? Is the Chamber of Wonders, the Chamber of Arts or Cabinet of Curiosities. And right. he had... He is equivalent of the Ken Height Memorial Library. Exactly, except with more minerals and dwarves and slightly fewer books. Um, he, I mean, he's the emperor. He's, he has plenty of books. Um, but he had, uh, as a percentage of the books available at the time, he had probably more. Yeah. No, I think that definitely he had a, he had a bigger percentage of them. And again, if he wanted, for example, Tadius Hagesius to write him a book about magic rocks, he would pay him to write a book about magic rocks. And it's much faster than waiting for the guy to get around to doing it. He may have owned the Voynich manuscript, assuming that the Voynich manuscript was ever owned by anyone famous as opposed to some monastery in the tail end of nowhere, which is where right. it was found. But he seems like the sort of person who would have owned the Voynich manuscript at any rate. Right. The letter written in 1665, which is not too long after the date, claims that he paid 300 ducats for it, um, which is, again, the kind of thing that he would have thrown out on a really cool manuscript. So it's it, it's not 19th century mystification. It's 17th century mystification. But again, as we've said, uh, Rudolf had lots and lots of, of court enemies uh, who were like nervous, for example, that the emperor had not had an heir and was tolerating a bunch of Protestants who were going to get Big, uh, too big for their britches and possibly start some sort of civil war and uh, in, indeed were correct. Um, and, he, and he would, you know, send away to other countries if he heard of someone super famous. So Nostradamus, he heard about Nostradamus. And so he wrote away and said, do me a horoscope, Nostradamus. And Nostradamus did. So uh, uses for him in gaming. Uh, if you're running a Renaissance game, you can have your collection of mercenaries and scoundrels uh, run a heist operation trying to liberate something valuable, uh, perhaps the Voynich manuscript itself, uh, from his uh, cabinet of wonders. Uh, if you are a uh, magician character, you <laughs> although you should watch out for his collection of lions and tigers, which <laughs> in proper um, uh, in proper zoological uh, uh, fashion are not kept penned up in cages; they are allowed to wander around. And, uh, indeed the, um, uh, apparently the, 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 the account books of his palace, uh, list compensation paid to noble victims of lion and tiger attack. <laughs> well, there we go. The, so there's some obstacles that you have to uh, get through in order to, uh, to get the thing you're trying to steal from him. Uh, also he could be the, uh, equivalent of the, the man in the hat in the tavern who sends you on the mission. So he could be your, a patron who sends you out to go get things to put in his uh, cabinet of wonders. Uh, how else would we use him? Or you could work for his um, uh, sort of uh, factotum, Philip Lang, who was in charge of the cabinet of wonders um, as his, you know, sort of uh, personal favorite and best buddy. And Philip Lang would say, now go get this for the emperor. And then whether or not it ever makes its way to the emperor, that's really up to Philip Lang. 
So if you don't want to have the emperor unbending himself so much, so far as to become the Mr. Johnson of your adventure, you can have Philip Lang be your Mr. Johnson. He also, of course, because he was tolerant of the Jewish community, uh, Rabbi Lowe, the great Kabbalist, uh, was able to work openly in Prague. So this would be an opportunity for you to go and meet with Rabbi Lowe and get Kabbalistic training if your characters are Jewish or if your characters are Kabbalists and can impress Rabbi Lowe in the context of a magical fantasy world without necessarily getting in trouble. Um, in the modern day, uh, you can, of course, just posit that, you know, this artifact, you can make... Uh, uh, Emperor Rudolph II, part of the provenance for a MacGuffin in a modern day, uh, either just sort of international adventure or uh, occult adventure game, so that this can be, you know, the most precious item in his cabinet wonders. And now uh, you come across it, and, uh, you know, a undead John D comes after you, or, uh, you know, whatever your uh, threat of, of the day might happen to be, or you can be trying to pursue a, you know, an alchemical formula that. Uh, he had uh, commissioned and locked away for, for centuries. So he's a, a source of uh, kind of historical uh, MacGuffinry there. Yeah, I should I should mention that there is, in fact, even a scenario uh, for uh, playing in Rudolphine Prague. Uh, the Ascension of the Magdalene, written by the lovely and talented Rick Neal, Patreon backer Rick Neal, um, for Unknown Armies and also for D20, I think. So if you pick that up from our good buddies at Atlas Games, you will have the veritable repository of fun things to do with uh, Rudolph in-game. Well, that sounds uh, like we're ending on a plug, which traditionally is a way that uh, we've signaled the end of a segment. So let's declare that the end of this segment to retreat into our own personal cabinet of wonders uh, and, uh, by way of a commercial, into our final segment. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This player's-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agency that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. From all across the land, digitally and in person, but mostly digitally, crumbs the cry... Tell me more! And when it is cried by our beloved Patreon backers, they are crying about Canon Robin Consume Media, our ever-so-popular uh, weekly issue of things that Ken and Robin have seen, read, uh, or otherwise consumed media-wise, and they want to know more about certain media properties. And I believe we will begin with a request to tell me more about the Vampire Countess, which Robin read. Uh, I can see you were thinking it was going to go Ken, but nope, it goes Robin, which Robin read. Tell us more about uh, Feval's Vampire Countess, Robin. Before that, a, <gasps> a brief administrative note. 
Uh, the reason we're doing this segment at the end of the podcast instead of the middle where we normally would is that the third thing we're going to talk about uh, is going to have spoilers uh, in it for the movie. So if you are planning to see The Neon Demon and don't want us to spoil the ending, because in order for me to uh, fully express my uh, d- disdain for, for that film, I'll have to talk about the ending. And also, uh, if you're one of the uh, folks who uh, listens to the podcast with your kids in the car, uh, maybe that last bit of this segment is yes, also something maybe, maybe, that you maybe, do not want them maybe to Maybe stop at Dairy Queen and send them in to get a, a softie or something. So there's some uh, parental discretion in the, in the third bit of the segment. But back to the vampire countess by Paul Favall. Uh, much is made of the fact that this was a vampire novel written about half a century before uh, Stoker, or well, f- 40 years, I guess. Uh, but there are other vampire novels before then. Uh, this is a... Uh, Paul Favall uh, wrote a lot of uh, horror and also a lot of uh, intrigue. Uh, he was a master of the genre called the uh, feuilleton, which is uh, basically sort of, uh, want to say, 19th century uh, Dan Brown sort of stuff with all sorts of conspiracy. And like uh, many things that Ken and I do, it uses real history. So this was written in the 1850s, but it ha- it's set in 1801, and Napoleon is a big backstage character in it. And the uh, evil vampire is not just uh, vampirizing people. She's uh, That's just sort of a sideline to what she's really trying to do, which is she's trying to uh, possibly attack or kill Napoleon, or maybe uh, take one of Napoleon's major historical enemies to him and get a reward for him. That's never quite clear, because uh, this is a novel that was written in serialized format, and clearly, those of us who've written in the serialized format can recognize in another writer the fact that they were making it up as they went along and <laughs> nothing really connects to one another. So this is a fun but frustrating novel in that half of the chapters are just boring garbage. And they're and that's because they're told in uh, some sort of ill-rot way or another, for example, just through dialogue or from the wrong perspective, or there's a lot of you know, the typical 19th century ruminating on social issues instead of telling the story. Thank God that doesn't ever happen now in fiction. Well, not so clearly, <laughs> right? It's it, People tend to bury it more. And uh, in 19th century is more of an expectation that you would get a lot of, you know, proverbs and potted social observations from, from the writer. And readers seem to want that, just like they seem to want a lot of nature description. Uh, but... Um, the other half of the book has all of these sort of cool characters and situations that never quite cohere to each other or add up to anything. So, for example, the vampire rules covering the the vampires in this are really interesting and super stealable, I think. So the idea here is that every vampire has its own unique method of vampirism. And so the vampire countess Edema, her way of uh, preying on people and extending her life is she uh, attacks beautiful young women, uh, scalps them to death, and then she puts their uh, scalp on her head and then uh, through vampire magic she uh, suddenly revives herself as a gorgeous woman who has this new head of hair and she has to do this you know, every X number of days in order to remain alive. And so that's part of the plot line. That is pretty great. Um, That's super great. And a very, uh, I think, does she have to to kill them to scalp them? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Thank goodness. Because otherwise you get a bunch of bald eyewitnesses wandering around. No, no. This isn't just like, uh, you know, you get sent to the wig factory. This is full murder. And the detail here is that it's not a wooden stake, but a red hot poker. 
that uh, that kills your uh, enemy vampire and her whole plot the, the, the final chapter where she goes back to her vampire sire having gathered all the money that she's supposed to bring him is, is really cool and vivid there's uh, part of the plot is that she has this gang of anti-Napoleon rebels who all want to assassinate Napoleon and they each uh, have this sort of cool background associated with them so you know for each different Napoleonic campaign there's somebody who wants vengeance on him so there's the the white-haired young man with the frozen features. There's a right-hand man to to Saint Lovature who wants a vengeance for what he did to Haiti. Uh, there's a, an Algerian who wants vengeance. This for is what was awesome. It's, it's it's like super the, awesome. It's it's like the um uh, the Magnificent Seven or something. Except it comes to nothing. Right. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> it's just there. <laughs> and then at the end, she just sort of betrays them. And there's a description of how they're. Uh, you know, all killed in a castle or something. And so there was so many. <laughs> That's kind of awesome, too. Yeah. And there's, uh, there's all these dangling plot elements. And, uh, you know, uh, Brian Stableford, who did the English translation in the footnotes, you know, goes through all the different things that don't actually really make sense at all. Um, and so uh, it, the bits of it that are cool are so cool that I, it almost makes you want to rewrite it from the ground up, finding a way to take all the cool elements and actually put them together into a coherent narrative. I think the way to the way to do it is maybe to do it as a as a uh, nice black agents adventure where you play those um, uh, assembled uh, anti Napoleon dudes and then the vampires there. You you could do that. The thing is, you know, it's such an obscure book, at least in uh, for English readers, that uh, you know. I'm not sure it would mean anything to anybody without <laughs> a much better version of that story to read because I wouldn't. Uh, it's interesting as an academic exercise, but it's not satisfying uh, as entertainment. Now he um, wrote a couple of other uh, vampire novels, which I haven't read yet. Uh, one of them, Vampire City, uh, as I understand it, more comic in tone, and the vampire killing protagonist is the real life gothic novelist Anne Radcliffe. Which is pretty awesome. Yeah. And so that's been compared to like, you know, 19th century French Buffy the Vampire. So um, I might eventually go back and try some more Paul Favol. Uh, this may uh, have something to do with something I might be working on soon. Uh, but uh, there were more cool elements there than there was a satisfying, uh, well-wrought story. But uh, something that has both, uh, from what I understand, uh, a great premise and great execution is a, a television miniseries that you uh, recently enjoyed that's on Netflix, and it's called Occupied. Right. Tell us about that. Uh, Occupied is a Norwegian thriller. It's a political thriller, the sort of high-end uh, stories that uh, later Tom Clancy or Alan Drury, where the characters are all sort of close to the corridors of power. In fact, one of the main characters is the brand new a green prime minister of Norway who is uh, brought in in a landslide election after a big hurricane uh, that uh, they blame on global warming terrifies and angers everyone in Norway. So they vote the green party in and his solution to the problem of global warming is to stop all oil and gas production and instead convert the country to thorium to clean, efficient thorium nuclear power. And this in the near, in the torn from tomorrow's headlines world of the series angers the European Union because America, having become self-sufficient in oil thanks to fracking, has just stopped shipping oil to anyone. And uh, the Middle East, uh, because America is not there to sort of uh, beat everyone and keep the taps open, has fallen apart into civil wars so they can't get oil from there. So the only place Europe can get oil and gas is from Norway. And when Norway says we're turning off the taps, 
the European Union uh, inveigles, and it doesn't take much inveigling, the Russians into occupying Norway to maintain oil and gas production. And that is the occupation of the title occupied. And it's based on a, um, uh, on a notion or a story by, uh, not an actual written story, but Joe Nesbo, the thriller writer, he, he does sort of dark crime novels mostly, came up with the, with the sort of scenario and the setting. And then it was written by Eric Skoldberg, who is sort of the, I guess the, the impresario, the guy that directed a lot of the episodes and wrote a bunch of the episodes and sort of drove it into the uh, TV format. And so the story is the beginnings of this Russian occupation because it begins as sort of a, no, we're just here to help you out with your oil uh, industry and then slowly becomes, and we're never leaving. And uh, it's, it's very uh, uh, twisty and political and thrillery and is, uh, you know, really well written and sort of, uh, uh, like I say, uh, issues driven, uh, the, the story is intelligent. The characters do not make intelligent decisions necessarily, but, but they do it for understandable motives as opposed to, um, uh, the sort of idiot plot. They have to do this for the story to go on. And it has a, it has a, a lot of very interesting, uh, turns for its relatively sparse character set because one of its virtues is that where AMC would do this with a million characters, or a million uh, viewpoint characters. We have four viewpoint characters in this show, which is vastly refreshing, which means that everyone gets a plot turn in every episode. So the story really rackets along well, and that it's really well paced, even though the actual part where, you know, hated Russians are occupying things and, and machine gunning people doesn't really get started until much later in the series, but you can sort of see the beginnings of the, of, of the, of the problem. And it, and it grows at a, at a very, um, uh, very agreeable pace. Yes, part of our embarrassment of riches now and access to uh, innovative television is that now uh, cool series from all around the world are coming our way as Netflix in particular globalizes. And so there's all sorts of stuff to catch up on in uh, having too much television. Yes. Um, and so now finally we get to The Neon Demon, uh, which is a movie by uh, Nicholas Winding Refn starring Elle Fanning. Uh, she's a... Uh, Beautiful, very young model. She's 15 in the movie who goes to L.A. to become a model and uh, essentially becomes prey for everyone. It's uh, shot in the uh, same hyper-intense uh, style that you might be familiar with from uh, uh, Winding Refn films that I liked a lot more, uh, <laughs> such as Drive or uh, Only God Forgives. Stylistically, it... Um, uh, evokes giallo films and sort of refers to giallo without fully being a giallo film. Although like giallo, the music is a very vivid living part of the film. Yes. Another great score by Cliff Martinez. It's on Spotify. And, uh, I've been listening to that a lot, even though I didn't love the film. I do love the soundtrack and, uh, it's a great accompaniment to your next, uh, vampire or shadow run or any sort of modern, or a near future uh, game or, or sinister doings afoot. Um, and I was on board uh, really hard uh, at the beginning, and then uh, it took some turns that uh, uh, had me rolling my eyes pretty hard. But you, you stuck with it the whole way through. Poor Robin. Um, yes, I stuck through it because I uh, recognized, or I don't think I even read into it, I think I recognized that Wendy Greffin was trying to make a modern-day pagan myth. Uh, there, the ritual components of the, of the film are so very clearly put in by him, uh, throughout. Uh, the pagan elements are very clearly put in throughout, and he is trying to tell a pagan myth 
just one that had not yet been written down. And those pagan and ritual elements that are so very, very strong in the film carry it through what seems to be, uh, on a bald retelling of it, a, uh, ridiculous ending. And, um, <laughs> it, it does. I mean, but that, it, the yeah. same deal with, you know, Narcissus. Oh, he fell in love with his reflection and falls into the water. That's a ridiculous ending, but it's the ending that the myth has to have to happen or people get turned into trees or whatnot. Um, that's just how myths end. And the ending of this sort of recapitulates a lot of the thematic elements of the, of the movie. The, the, the spareness of it, uh, is, is super good. Um, you're, you're, um, it's, it's like he made it with, you know, a, a very small cast and practically no extras. So even though it's set in Los Angeles in the high fashion modeling scene, all the sets are like super empty and stark. It's like Greek theater. And again, I think that is because he wants to present it in this sort of pagan ritualized uh, fashion. Although, as you say, it's filmed in the uh, vocabulary of the Giallo, which makes it even more interesting to me, not less. And then I think he said that he also was inspired by the myth of Elizabeth Bathory and was making an Elizabeth Bathory movie in addition to everything else that he's doing. And that is the explanation for what happens at the very end when uh, the uh, Furies have consumed our heroine, L. Fanning, and are literally consuming our heroine, L. Fanning, and bathing in her blood. Uh, that is the, um, uh, that is the sort of, uh, Elizabeth Bathory element that he has inserted into his, again, I think pretty terrific, newly discovered, uh, pagan myth. So that's, that's my take on it. Now, Robin, you, I assume, are going to beat on the misogyny and ridiculousness of it. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, uh, bear in mind that, uh, my objections are not, uh, moral objections, uh, or just to, uh, it's an objection to, uh, what I thought was extreme lameness, because when you're uh, <laughs> writing a movie about uh, women in competition with each other and destroying each other and about uh, the commodification of uh, women, uh, perhaps you should think about having some sort of uh, understanding of how that is depicted and what that means and how tired and, and stupid and unthinking your uh, portrayal is so that when you first see the models together and they are... Uh, you know, written like Claire Booth, loose characters, uh, you know, it's just uh, uh, bitchy and uh, uh, competitive with each other. And basically the, the indictment of the, the modeling world here is that the models are mean to each other. And the, uh, the depiction of those characters and sort of the uh, kind of robotic performance style that everybody has been uh, encouraged to uh, deliver. And uh, also, if you're a, a dude and you're writing a predatory lesbian character, don't. <laughs> don't write a predatory lesbian character uh, because you probably uh, don't know enough about uh, that aspect of life to uh, depict it anything other than a, a ridiculous male fantasy. Well, he, he is that, European, you know. He's from Denmark. Who knows what, they, what, what goes on in Copenhagen? Sure, whatever. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, Gen, the Jenna Malone character, it's a, ridicu a ridiculous portrayal of her and... Uh, in order to, uh, you know, you were speaking early about occupied about the importance of having the characters make do things that make sense in order to have the bad things happen. Well, here you have the opposite of that. You have a ridiculous contrived situation where there's a horrifically portrayed sexual assault in the next door hotel room to where the main character is staying, and uh, she gets upset. So she calls her her uh, putative friend, Jenna Malone, and Jenna Malone says, come over to my house. And then that gives her the opportunity to uh, attempt to uh, force a sexual encounter uh, on her when, of course, you know, 
what's not accounted for is, well, don't you perhaps call the police? The police have already been mentioned as someone you can call earlier in the film. Uh, and then, uh, you know, suddenly you have this ridiculous scene where uh, uh, Jenna Malone, who's not only a, a fashion makeup artist, but uh, also works in a funeral home, because, of course, those two jobs combine, uh, is suddenly, uh, you know, has to work at what she's doing by uh, having sex with a conveniently placed uh, super hot corpse. And uh, uh, and then, you know, it's it just, only medium it's hot. Be... I mean, compared to the rest of the movie, it's not the hottest corpse in the movie. Uh, okay. <laughs> And it's Los Angeles. I think the corpses are just hotter there. Right. And also the the sort of the turn that the character makes, because there are points where everybody else in this film is a robot, where the Elle Fanning character temporarily has sort of moments of real characterization breaking through. But then there's a turn where she, you know, fully buys into the fashion industry and stays with her creepy fashion friends uh, instead of being with her uh, marginally less creepy alternative uh, boyfriend and... Uh, but that moment isn't underlined at all. And then suddenly she makes the, the choice that, uh, you know, results in uh, her making the declaration that leads the, the other models to, to destroy her. And uh, it's not that the portrayal of uh, characters or men in particular in Refn's other films are realistically drawn, but they are differently drawn than just this dumb robotic cliche version of, of whatever it is. And uh, here, the, the characterization uh, is lame in a, you know, a predictable, overdone way. Uh, the, the character turn is not uh, underlined enough. You lose your investment with, uh, you know, the characters, even the investment that you would have with uh, stylized characters. Although normally, something that a creator says in an interview about... Uh, why they made a film is to be taken with a grain of salt. Refn does say something about his motivation for writing this film that I think makes it all the more risible and certainly with what I've seen on the screen matches what you're looking at. So his explanation of what this film is, is that it is a dramatization of his feelings when he went to Hollywood and everybody wanted his talent. So he is the virginal L. Fanning character in this scenario, and the models are all of the, uh, I guess, other directors who are trying to steal his style and... To, to kill and, and uh, eat Nicholas Windegraffen. To kill and eat and, and devour him. Uh, and uh, the, the thing is, is that, again, as, as a male writer, when you take what's going on with you and just try to port that into a female character, you need to take a few steps back and, th you know, how is this going to uh, resonate with uh, with uh, social history and and the way that uh, that women are treated and portrayed and uh, I think it's just uh, all the more absurd when you realize that this is his vision of himself and the declarations that the character makes about herself I think just uh, explains a lot because uh, you know we my wife and I were just shaking our heads at the end of this and it's like is this so feminist that it's misogynist is this the, like the critique of the fashion industry that's but. No, it's it's. He thinks it's a metaphor about his his experience. He thinks he's he's the Elf Fanning character. So um, the the eye rolling got even harder after I looked into it. Well, he is very pretty. I, I suppose he is. Well, his his images are very pretty. I mean, again, I I think that you know you're you're asking for uh, characterization for paintings on the side of a Greek vase. But his other films are equally stylized, but they don't 
uh, flow into typical other stupid characterizations. They are broad in a different, more they original are un- They are uniquely way. stylized and weird and inexplicable as opposed right. to traditionally stylized and weird and inexplicable. And and dumbass. <laughs> That's the problem. Well, <laughs> All uh, those other things. Again, I'm, you know, I'm, people, I'm people, in, uh, people in myths don't make sensible decisions. That's part of how you can tell you're in a myth. Is, well, you know, Aphrodite not- says, do you love me best? And some idiot says, well, you know, you're all right, Aphrodite. No, what did they get turned into a, 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 a fish or something? Right. But it's got the, the characterization is too realistic to be that stylized. It, it does introduce, it does invite a level of realistic, uh, engagement. Uh, and so that the, the argument, oh, well, it's a myth doesn't, doesn't, he doesn't sell it. I'm not saying he, he couldn't have sell, sold it. I'm saying that his execution is sufficiently Elrot that he fails to sell it. He fails to rise above the obstacles that he's he's set before himself and does so in spectacular fashion, right? This is... Oh, it is spectacular. I mean, I I agree with you that it is spectacular. And I agree that if you do not like this movie, you are really not going to like this movie. This is not one of those things where, I mean, I... I, I, did I make it the pinnacle or did I just make it recommended? You can make it recommended. I made it recommended and I was watching it and it is not the pinnacle for me. It's not even the pinnacle of the recent Nicholas uh, Wendig uh, Reffin movies, which I think is probably only God forgives, but it is, um, but, but I, I really liked it. And I know that, uh, when I was watching it, I was like, if you didn't like this movie, you really hate it. There, there is not a middle ground for this film. Well, my middle ground is I was loving it partway through and then and then you hated it right but there was no point where you said well all right i guess i get that right and that's the mark of it's a level of terrible that only really brilliant filmmakers can acquire (laughs) a a mediocre filmmaker could not have made something this vividly terrible it could not have made something this interestingly beautifully terrible because you and i have both watched enough giallos to know that indeed you can make something vividly terrible if you're not a very good filmmaker and they did it for decades in italy <laughs> right but that's just there's a there's a depth of terrible that that though that a mediocre filmmaker because their terribleness a part of that is that they're not good at executing mm-hmm. whereas this is a very terrible idea splendidly executed mm-hmm. uh, which makes it all the more powerfully bad well i think that we have uh we have laid out our differences on uh, the neon demon neither of us will convince the other because that is how art and ken and robin all of us work um and so do you do you want to um uh, pick out uh keanu reeves's pretty terrific performance as a as a yet another predatory male um, uh, monster in the film, or do you just want to move oh, on? Yeah, it, uh, past the performances that? are, are uh, as is quite often the case in truly terrible films. The performances uh, across the board are quite good, and and again, it's you know selling. They're they're committing hard to uh, something ludicrous, and that's that's a big part of this uh, you know sort of uh, film modi style of uh, uh, things that have gone awry. I still very much look forward to. Um, any other future uh, uh, work of his? Uh, perhaps next time he'll go back to male protagonist, which I think is more of his uh, his metier. Uh, but until then, I think, as you suggest, we have uh, uh, beaten this film uh, either to death or exalted it on a, a pedestal. A plinth. Towards, a plinth. A plinth. Uh, and it's a beautiful looking plinth with a great soundtrack. Yeah, I with a crazy say. good soundtrack. It's a yeah, gorgeous yeah. plinth. So uh, on that note, I think it's time to uh, adjourn for another week. And uh, next time we'll be uh, doing an episode uh, 
in a hotel room in Indianapolis. So we'll give in, next week will be our easy questions week. It's a, it's a, it's a glamorous remote from a motel room in Indianapolis. Yes. With the sound of the air conditioning whirring in the background, right. uh, as opposed to the sound of the construction noise on Bathurst street whirring in the background this time. So, uh, Without further ado, folks, uh, join us uh, next week for another exciting episode of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask Fagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Join the ranks of such illustrious backers as... Jan Pospichel. Jeff Cars. Jean-Francois Parody, Joel Luttrell And Joshua Brumley On Twitter he's at Kenneth Height And he's at Robin D. Laws See you next time when once again We will talk about stuff